it's really great to have Paris Rutherford on here. Uh, Paris is principal of Catalyst Urban Development. This is a real estate development company that has been um, the, Paris in some form or another has certainly worked on many, many of the high-profile projects here in Dallas-Fort Worth as a developer. Um, he's done a lot of consulting. He can talk about a, a lot about what he's been doing. He was a practice leader of, uh, of RTKL Associates Global Planning Practice and was director of RTKL itself, uh, now Collison RTKL. Um, and is, is somebody who has done you know, some very high quality projects in, in downtowns and neighborhoods, particularly in, in Dallas-Fort Worth, but um, all over the place here. Um, Paris, it was a very interesting conversation because when we have these conversations with people who might be larger developers, uh, we tend to expect them to think in a certain way. And Paris surprised us because uh, the extent to which he thinks a lot the way that, that we do. Um, the, that even though he's worked on uh, and led these larger projects, that he also gets kind of the fine-grained um, level of detail that's required to make great places, which I think is one of the reasons why he was... Uh, why he's been as, as successful as he is. Um, so um, we're, we'll look forward to talking with you about what you see as, as how kind of COVID has, has changed things in the development world and, and what you see as, as the next steps going forward. So uh, with that introduction, uh, Paris, thank you for, for being here on the PlaceCast. Thanks, Rick. Appreciate you having me and appreciate all the kind words there in the intro. Awesome. So um, with, that, with that ado, um, would love your kind of uh, kind of a maybe a, a large scale perspective. I know that you're pursuing uh, several projects right now that that from what I can think from what I can see, just kind of reviewing the news, don't seem to have slowed down as much as one might expect from this COVID crisis. So we'd be interested uh, first in starting hearing a little bit about um, what you're working on right now and maybe how uh, this crisis and and the aftermath have either affected it um, or informed uh, your work right now? Sure, yeah, we, uh, thankfully, we uh, continue to be busy. Um, you know, going back to your introduction, um, you know, I came to this from, I'm educated as an architect and as a planner. Um, right. and in the 90s, I, I practiced as such um, around the globe uh, with RTKL, really enjoyed that experience. Um, but that was kind of a, a very interesting time. Um, it was a time market sort of followed suit and now, of course, that's commonplace. Um, and so in the early 2000s, I made the decision to do what I always wanted to do, which is to get into development. But I continue to have the, the sort of the thoughts and the formation of my philosophy on things. I'm still deeply rooted in planning and placemaking in particular, um, and thinking about use in a strategic sense. So, you know, none of that, none of that has stopped, you know, unfortunately with uh, the coronavirus and, and all those issues. Um, you know, that, that has uh, led us to put ourselves into an induced economic coma um, right. that will pass. Um, we will get on, um, but we've got some challenges right now. In the midst of that process, though, we did close a construction loan and started a project, uh, which was remarkably difficult to right. do um, during this time, just because of the panic and the fear. Um, so it took a lot of discussion um, on uh, having people feel comfortable um, that it was okay to take a risk, um, that things were going to come back, and that uh, the project that we're doing in this case uh, is the right thing to do in the city and will be successful. Um, but it, it took a fair amount of fortitude on the part of capital and on our part um, and on the city's part to, to kind of advance with that. We continue to be under construction on a large project in downtown Fort Worth um, as the master developer of the south side of downtown along Lancaster. Um, which is a, a street that was basically created after the highway was moved. Um, and thankfully, construction was seen as a vital, uh, you know, vital business. Um, so our construction activities have continued, thankfully. Um, if they didn't continue, I, I would be probably not sitting here. I'd be doing something else, uh, trying to work out our next steps. But thankfully, we happen to be in the area of growth that, you know, the state recognizes as being vital. Interesting. And then, yeah, and then we are, we're finishing design on a large mixed-use project in Richardson, and it's downtown. Um, and that will be very cool. Uh, the intention is to 
bring a little bit of the flair and grit um, of Bishop Arts um, to uh, to suburbia. I mean, and create an urban node there in the historic core um, of Richardson. And it's it's pretty remarkable looking at that community and the evolution that it's had over the last, in particular, the last ten years. Um, but that's sort of a, a go-to place now for the millennials that are buying homes. Um, you know, I would always sort of laugh to myself when people would say millennials aren't buying homes. It's they're completely different. It's like no, they're just straddled with debt, um, and they will get to the point just like everyone else. Well, they'll they'll uh, be looking to start a family and go through that process. So we're looking at a, um, a mixed-use project that's uh, with a lot of rental housing um, and restaurants. And I think that's because the market up there is going to evolve when people's friends move up to Richardson um, and maybe don't have the commute time that you know they have where they move from. So I think that, that area is going to continue to evolve. And Richardson's always seemed like a very interesting um, case to me. You know, I remember when I first moved to the region, I was living in, in downtown Fort Worth. And a lot of times, you know, when I was wanting to go to unique ethnic restaurants, as I was want to do, um, we'd end up going to Richardson or to areas around it. Uh, so, so to me, um, you know, it's a, it's a place that's put a lot of, of focus um, on its downtown uh, and, and kind of trying to, to work with something that where they kind of had limited bones, but they're, they're trying to make something of it. Um, but the, the diversity of options and the diversity of people there, I think, create, create an opportunity. Is that kind of the way that the downtown is being seen or is it is leveraging that or are you taking a different direction? No, it's, it's leveraging that for sure. Um, you know, where we're starting is uh, we're kind of starting uh, a bit further back um, than you might expect. So it's, it's true suburban kind of redevelopment, reinvention. Um, the, there's barely any of the existing historic fabric right. um, on the ground. Um, over time in the 50s, like our, you know, we did a project in downtown Arlington, it reminds me of that. You know, in the 50s, there were buildings that were torn down, 50s and 60s. And in that progress, they came in with pad sites and other things that now are just old, old suburban buildings um, that don't really resonate um, in any meaningful way. But some of those are, will be converted into some interesting spaces. A lot of them will be transformed into new development sites. Um, but the fact that there's such a rich tapestry of of race and and background and ethnicity um, up there, I think is very cool because uh, you don't get that in a lot of areas. So, you know, we've got what's called Chinatown, but it's basically a, a retail strip center that was right. in the 90s and early 2000s that has some of the best Chinese restaurants and Asian restaurants in the region. And they're all right yep. there, they're a block and a half away. So we want to celebrate that um, while bringing urbanism back into the, the form of downtown. Yeah, and I saw, I did, I don't know, I'm not very familiar with, with your work specifically in, in, in this type of, of context or if it's something that you've, you've done stuff with. I've certainly seen, um, for example, we were, the, the, our, our local uh, Congress for the New Urbanism chapter took a tour uh, with you in, in downtown Arlington. And, and for um, our listeners who might not be familiar with the area, Arlington is halfway between Dallas and Fort Worth and is the largest city in, um, in the United States with no form of public transportation whatsoever. Um, not even buses, but they do have, you know, a major university and, and two stadiums and, and six flags and a lot of other assets. Um, and they have a downtown that was mostly kind of taken out um, that's that's near this this university, um, and and so you know they but they have kind of little nodes, and you kind of came in and, and did, did this development um, that I think helps to to make the connection between these nodes. Um, so I'm interested to hear what what that's doing. I wanted to ask kind of a broader question though, because Richardson always seemed like a particularly strong opportunity for um, thinking about strip mall retrofits and strip mall revitalization. That, that isn't necessarily where, where it's, you know, here's $50 million of capital being thrown into it, but, but a more incremental type of approach, especially because you have different cultures there that, that, might, that, that might be amenable to that type of, of approach. Have you given any thought to that, or are you looking at potentially other places in, in that area, this, this kind of very suburban context where you might be able to, uh, to leverage the work that you're doing downtown? 
I have thought a lot about that, not only in Richardson, but all over DFW and places outside of DFW. Um, it's certainly probably one of the biggest opportunities that exists right now, in particular where retail is headed and, and kind of the, the state of, of retail right now, which we can probably talk about after a bit. Um, specifically in Richardson, we're not doing that. Um, but, um, you know, I have worked on projects, for instance, down in DeSoto in their town center. I converted a failed um, retail shopping center, grocery anchorage shopping center, um, into a, a mixed-use government center with housing and some mm -hmm. restaurants and things. Uh, essentially, developed on the parking lot. Um, we were the planner on that um, back back in the day, and Chama Crow was the developer. It's right around the time that I made the shift from planning to development. Okay, I didn't know that was you. I've been there though. Yeah, yeah, um, but yeah, you know, Arlington is is interesting in that way. I mean, the way that we source our deals these days is through planning, actually. Uh, we've yet to buy any property through a broker, uh, nothing against the brokerage community. They're great. We use them in other capacities. Um, but what I find is that, um, you know, we kind of practice what I call urban acupuncture, right? Uh, where you come specifically in and solve some problems. And so, um, you know, from an implementation standpoint, we arrive at that through a planning vision. So hmm. if we're working with a city or a transit agency or a housing authority or a landowner or a bank or whoever it might be, and all of those, we've developed properties through that process. Um, we will arrive at a strategy of how to, how to solve a problem, how to fix something through planning um, that involves reinvestment and development. And then we will step in and, and kind of take a, a couple of those pieces and go vertical on it. Um, so that's how Arlington happened. Uh, we were engaged through Friesen Nichols, actually, as a subconsultant to look at their downtown. Um, and, you know, I saw that there was a disconnection that you were mentioning between sort of restaurants and the university. Um, and, and then meanwhile, having already looked in the area for a development site, um, I saw that the land was super fragmented. It was difficult to assemble. And yet you had large blocks of property owned by the city. Right. They happened to be parking lots, and the parking lots were disconnecting that experience, which was essentially old suburban, old dense suburban uh, development that didn't really hold together. They called it their downtown, but most of the downtown had been torn torn down right. in the early seventies when they built their city hall and, and central library. So, and those buildings were, you know, kind of old concrete brutalism, you know, not not in line with the uh, overall downtown plan that Freganese had prepared a few years back. So we were looking at how to uh, evolve um, investment in downtown. That's primarily what we were focused on. And every time we'd go into the council chamber for, you know, to present the plan and our concepts, it seemed like we were always last. And the item before us um, was staff trying to figure out what to do with their library. And right. They had about $20 million of investment improvements that they had to put into the library. Um, and it was stuff that you and I would never see. It was ADA improvements, it was asbestos abatement, it was stuff like that. Big waste of money, in my opinion. So we had the idea that even though that was outside of our scope, uh, in terms of the area that we were focused on, um, you know, yeah, you walk around, you look at things, and we saw that, it, that the Central Library site was a great site. Um, so what we proposed to the city was, let's tear the Central Library down, let's rebuild it on the City Hall parking lot, let's create a new plaza park uh, in between city hall and and um, and the new library and then open up the former library block for a private mixed-use development that would get back on the tax rolls and there'd be a shared parking garage you know amongst all the different uses to make that work and that's you know that hundred million dollar uh, investment is all in place now and it's operating well it looks great now people actually can see it downtown um, they can see in urban node that's that's mixed use. There's people walking on the street again. There are students going to the university, you know, by foot and bicycle again. Right. And the, and what I'm sort of most proud of in that regard is there's probably been an equal amount of, of reinvestment that's happened because of that project around it. So it's been a big knock-on effect, um, and we're you know we're real pleased with with owning that asset. But you know, I, I take a step back if you'll allow me. Sure. I think there's what I find really intriguing with where we are right now is that what I believe in, and I think what you believe in, uh, is mixed use, um, urbanity, not necessarily density, right. um, having urban places um, and having kind of nodes of activity and, and memory um, that are generated within the city. Um, you know, if you, if you boil that down to its essence, it's about people coming together 
It's right. about people commuting. It's about people sharing common experiences and all the good things that come out of that. Um, whether that's in a you know place like I grew up in in Santa Monica, California, and that's a great old urban you know community with a fair amount of density, but nice places to walk, interesting street scenes. Um, or some of the places here that I've worked on, Madison Circle, Microbrit Station, places like that. Um, but but if you look at it through the lens of dystopia, which we're hearing a lot about right now mm. with Corona, all of that goes away, right? Right. It, what it what it said if you if you take all of the concern and the panic that's out on the streets right now, all for good reason. You know, I you know, I certainly don't want to catch that that virus, and I, I don't want anyone I know to catch it. Um, despite it being a, a very teeny tiny percentage of our of our people, um, but in any event, it's it's serious. But if you if you take all of the incredible concern that's being applied to this, it it starts separating us. Mm -hmm. It starts looking at uh, really anti density. Uh, it starts if you lay that out into a development pattern. It's about separating land uses. It's about separating buildings. It's separating experiences. It's emphasizing the car. It's not emphasizing transit. We've done that before. We've done that for 80 years. It's called suburbia. And that didn't work out very well for us uh, economically. And the market, it didn't work out well for the market either. In the last, since I've been practicing since 1990, um, the market has generally resonated and, and been drawn to places that are the opposite of that. Um, so I find our, us at this fascinating time where we've got these competing forces that are coming together and I'm, I'm not dystopian. Um, I'm a very optimistic person. And, you know, America is an incredible innovator. Um, and we will come up with a vaccine or we working with the world community. That's, this is going to get fixed. But my hope is um, while that occurs, we don't dismantle, um, in particularly from a regulatory standpoint, we don't dismantle um, all the good work that's gone in through CNU and other organizations over the last you know, 20 years in particular. You know, because I find where DFW is, at least right now, to be fascinating. I mean, I grew up in Los Angeles. Um, that's a, a polycentric city. Um, it's it's comprised of very, very dense suburban sprawl, even though it's polynuclear. And, and, you know, we have the ability to maybe not go down the exact same path that LA has, even though we are going down a similar path. But the more that we evolve as a community, the more interesting we're becoming. We have immigrants coming in. We have a range of different folks and, and backgrounds coming in. And I find, you know, where we've been as a community over the last 20 years to be really uplifting, actually. We're getting much better. I think we're, we have a few more things that need to be addressed um, before we can kind of join the, the world stage as an innovation hub. Um, but I think we're on that, on that path. So my, my hope is, and our personal efforts are, is to not allow regulation to dismantle that. Um, because it will take us in the wrong direction. Well, and I and I do think you know that that there are we, there's a risk of some negative impacts from this, but there's also an opportunity. I think that there will be some some positive impacts from this. Um, so on the negative side, a lot of your concern is is you know that that this is going to be seen as a call for. Um, you know, let's, let's, you know, go back to kind of the conventional suburban development that we were doing before. By the way, on, on a large scale, if that was going to protect us, we wouldn't have, uh, you know, the most car-oriented, quote, sprawl country in, in the world with 4% with of the world's population and 28% or, or whatever it is now of, of the COVID deaths. So um, it, it's... Um, I think that it's not it's not necessarily protecting us, um, but I do think that there's um, there's opportunities as well, um, and and hopefully this will change the way we look at things like um, economic development and things like how we do planning and, and and things like that. So I think that there's a lot of opportunities as well. Yeah, no, I I agree with you. But you know, meanwhile, we're we're practicing all the things that we're supposed to be doing. You know, uh, we're just now just starting to open up our our leasing offices and management offices. Of course, we've got social distancing and we're cleaning things and doing all the stuff that you would expect um, a good owner to do. Um, but with that said, um, that's not the solution. The solution in the end is a vaccine. Um, the solution is uh, some of us are probably going to get it. Um, unfortunately, we're going to build up antibodies and we're going to move on. Um, yeah. But, you know, hopefully, you know, as you're saying, we don't use this as an opportunity to kind of go backwards. 
you know, it is surprising to me that we haven't had a plan uh, for this uh, at any level. It's, it's not a political statement, um, but we were just unprepared. Um, but the good news about our country is we may start slow, but we always finish strong. And, you know, that will happen in this case. Um, and we will, I think, we'll be stronger coming out of it as long as we keep our wits about us. Yeah, I, I wanted to go back to a comment you made earlier talking about um, the capital and the fortitude required to, to get the projects moving, um, especially on the scale that you're talking about. And one, I wanted to say that I think right now doing that specifically is one of the most important things in society for anyone to be doing. So for you to be able to take the capital and putting it into something that's making things go, making things move, making things happen is incredibly important. And I just wanted to get some perspective from you on one, um, does this change the way truly successful urban development looks with the uncertainty and the things that you brought up? Like how do you, how do you emphasize the opportunity that you have here with the capital, with, with people that are, that are hesitant? What are some of the reassurances that you give because there are timeless principles that you can build things with that we don't have to know necessarily, we don't have to have a crystal ball to see the future, right? But we can know if we do things a certain way that it's still gonna work out. And there's just some more commentary on maybe how you, how you talk to people and reassure them of the uncertainty in the future, uh, especially getting that capital flowing because I think that's really important right now in, in keeping things going. Well, I, I think the good news and, and something that's completely different than, you know, back in 2009, um, which we were busy developing in 2009, but we were working on affordable housing at that time. Um, and, and, you know, working with um, City as, as a partner, and we continue to be busy. Um, what's different this time, though, is the fundamentals of the economy coming into, the, into this were real strong. Um, obviously, in different areas of the country, it, it was different, and even sub-markets within our area were different. So would I be expecting, if this didn't occur, to see a bunch of new high-rises in uptown Dallas? Probably not. Um, you know, there's been a lot of that that's happened. But meanwhile, we still have growth that's coming here. And even in this, I th actually think one of the outcomes of this, of this situation we're in currently is we're going to have even more growth, actually. I think people in New York and California, I hear from realtor friends of mine that the, the percentage of calls that they're getting even in the last month is up like tenfold from those places from where it has been. So it's just, it's reporting some of that. It's reporting, uh, it's, it's making sure that the projects themselves are fundamentally strong in terms of how they're positioned um, and the strategy behind it. But the, 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 real, the real positive here is that there is a massive amount of capital um, that is out there, whereas back in 2009, that wasn't the case. Um, today, it is the case. But capital being capital, um, it's, it's inherently conservative. Generally speaking, it's conservative, particularly on the debt side. So if you're a bank and your, your protection is what your loan to value is, how do you determine value in, in a situation like this where, you know, you have people losing jobs and they're not able to pay rent or, you know, or you have office and, and retail tenants that, that can't be there and can't be in operation and maybe going out of business. Very difficult in the short term to determine value. So they sit on the sideline because they don't want to make a mistake and then come in and then realize that they loaned or, or lent on a project that, uh, that they shouldn't have because they wound up with, you know, uh, with a, a loan to value ratio that was, that was not appropriate. But that's one, that's one uh, kind of narrow look at, at the market. The other side though is, as they say, in these situations, cash is king. Um, mm -hmm. So those folks that um, have a lot of money that can go out and buy cash, that is happening. Um, you know, some of it may be kind of vulture uh, in the sense that you could have a bunch of hotels that are really struggling right now at 4%, I think it's 4% occupancy across the board. I mean, hmm. wow, okay. that's really, really bad uh, depending on what market you're in. So hospitality is gonna be really rough for a while. So it's probably an opportunity for, so, for folks to come in and, and buy some, you know, great assets that we know when we get through this will continue to be great and they can take advantage of the situation. That's a little unfortunate to me because the owners and operators and, and employees of those scenarios didn't create this, this situation. So, um, you know, I don't like looking at things in that regard. But there are groups out there that do understand the macro dynamics of where we are regionally here in Texas. 
um, and see that even in the midst of this crisis, there's still people moving here. Um, and it, you know, I remember back in the 2010, 2011 timeframe when capital was just starting to move, for the three years leading up to it, there had still been growth. So that's why, for instance, so many apartments got built um, in that timeframe, because there was pent up demand. Um, and we were, we might have, might have been overbuilding um, on a normal, normal yearly uh, average, but we weren't when you look at what had been pent up up to that point. And, you know, even, even last year, which, you know, we broke all records in multifamily, um, but in, you know, uh, more urban residential, um, we still were under where we should have been uh, from a demand standpoint because of the, the beauty of the growth that we have here. So going back to your question, you know, capital on the equity side that understands that and then sees and then a deal is structured such that their risk is mitigated um, to, to a certain degree through, you know, the, the amount of debt that's being taken on and the amount of ownership that the, that, that equity has in, in the deal. It's just how it's structured. So, you know, a developer that isn't capitalized um, would have a tough time um, right now because they probably, if they were able to get something off the ground, it's probably just working on a fee basis. Um, but a developer that is capitalized, it's able to have skin in the game, as they say, um, can still get deals done. And, you know, we're, I wouldn't be here talking to you if, if that weren't the case. But, um, but I, I do, I go back to what I said earlier, which is this is short term not the virus it's long term but how we deal with the virus is short term uh, from an economic panic standpoint that's going to go away and you know i think we'll probably have another spike um, as we all come together everyone's talking about that right now um, but people also realize that you know i did math when this first started and saw that for you know i think they were expecting about two hundred thousand americans to die over the next two years from when that started from the virus that may be true um, but if you look at um, if you look at an economic downturn and what that does to our poor, um, the numbers are much larger than that. So if, if people aren't working, they're not working. And for those of us at the bottom end of the spectrum that have to work to be able to maintain, you don't have an option. So the, the, the fatality rate that comes out of poverty um, at the scale that we're talking about is much bigger um, than the risk that we have from the virus. So. I think there's a lot of smart people at, at the policy positions that understand that. I think that's one of the reasons why there's such a big push to get us back to work when it seems like it might be early. But um, I, I think some of that is underlying uh, in, in those efforts. I, I had a question about just in your past, the different experiences that you've had working, whatever whatever it's been, maybe maybe professional work or maybe just life experience that's maybe best equipped you or given you better insight into what we're going through. Obviously, none of us have been through a pandemic, but is there anything in life that you've looked back at and said, you know what, I learned something from this and I can apply it to this pandemic situation that's been really helpful? Absolutely, it's called architecture school. <laughs> yeah. Problem solving. Yeah. Um, continuing to stay optimistic. Um, you know, I grew up surfing, I love surfing. Uh, you'll go out in some situations where uh, you're, you're kind of wish you weren't in the situation. You've got some massive waves coming in and you're drifting over towards rocks um, and you realize that you better act now or something really bad could happen. And in that moment, you either you either perish or you don't, you know, and it's based on your action. So all those kinds of life experiences, you know, help prepare you to a certain degree. Sports, it's, yeah. it's a similar, similar analogy. Um, but in the end, I go back to architecture school and kind of that education. You know, it's about um, having controversy and having headwind uh, on an idea that might be, you know, kind of pushing the envelope or, or going against the grain of what, you know, the particular thoughts were at that moment. Um, and then having to talk through that and, and having to work through a, a strategy that is positioned so that it builds interest um, and, and kind of gets you through. And, I learned a lot in that process. This is no different. It's on a huge scale, obviously. Right. Um, but we will get through this. Uh, that, that applies to every industry. You know, I think science is, is a good analogy in that regard, too. You know, they're always kind of going into the unknown and figuring out new things. And that's why I think we'll have a vaccine or something like that that will, that will help with this. And, in, you know, and if it really comes down to it, we don't get a vaccine. And if the, uh, 
the reports of 4% of us die from it. 4% of those affected, which I think is 40% die. That's a big, horrible, huge number, but it's, it doesn't keep us from moving as a civilization. It doesn't take the civilization down. Um, so it's right. not Ebola, thankfully. And I had another thought uh, just to share with you if, if interested, but it, it, this gets out of Corona a little bit, but it gets back to um, what we were talking about earlier about urbanism and kind of city form and such. You know, I was recently, do, I, I have been teaching at SMU, so it's fresh on my mind. Uh -huh. But there's a, been looking at statistics about small business and thinking about the U.S. And, you know, uh, when I drive through West Texas, for instance, you see these, and it could be anywhere, be California or Ohio, you see these little farming communities that were centers of commerce, you know, 100 years ago or 150 uh -huh. years ago, back during that, that economy. And you just say, well, isn't this quaint? Isn't it romantic? I wish that these places are working when in reality they're just dying off. And, you know, and, and I've, I've wondered, well, is our small business kind of in that same uh, modality right now? Because uh, when you look at it, I think it's 99% of all entities in the U.S., all business entities, not, oh, I think it's 99.8% are small business. Mm -hmm. um, and yet it's, it's 48 or 49% of the employees are in small business. The vast majority of the small business are, you know, mom and pop uh, families, but, you know, small numbers of people by definition that are working there. So we, we have this massive infrastructure set up that allows and induces small business theoretically to be uh, successful. And yet, and, and what's nice about small business is that helps walkable urbanism. Um, because it's it's memorable you meet the people you go in the storefront so everything about that infrastructure just like the small west texas town is sort of very romantic and nice we're creating a, a polycentric city and yet the the headwinds and the forces against them are, are strong when you look at where income and and wealth creation has happened in our country over the last especially since 2000 and then you see that the top 1%, as we all know, is at like three, 400% uh, growth. Um, and whereas the bottom 50%, a lot of that is small business, um, have not, it's actually been in decline. So what I've wondered is, as we go through this process, is there, as it relates to coming out of Corona or figuring out a new norm, um, what does that do to small business? And, you know, I think one thing we have learned by being home with our families and walking around in the communities and such is there is power to that. And, you know, I think folks are starting to learn to, you know, maybe buy local and shop local in terms of restaurant and takeout and all that. I'm hoping that that trend continues because that will be very good for us collectively, urbanistically. And, um, you know, the, the sort of the mantra of we're going to allow you know, kind of big, huge global business to continue. And just that 1% is the only, you know, the only percent that is benefiting from growth. Um, we all know that has a shelf life. I don't know how long that is, but it has a shelf life. So when you convert that into affordable housing and, and everything else, if I were in a city right now, I would be doubling down on small investments mm -hmm. and small business mm -hmm. in places that make a meaningful change that support the, the idea of, of polynuclear and polycentric experiences. And, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that we're going to get on a trend that takes us in that direction because I think we'll all be better for it. Well, that's, that's interesting because that's exactly what we've been spending most of the last couple of months working on and, and, and thinking about or, or um, much of it. Um, and, and one thing that I think that cities are going to find out is that the hard way, unfortunately, in many cases, is that these very, even mom and pop businesses have a lot of secondary and tertiary impacts that, that punch far, far beyond its weight. Um, to your point, I often used to text as kind of a thought exercise or, you know, tweet out and things like that. Think about what would happen if um, you were to lose seven of your 10 best small businesses in downtown um, and how many millions and millions of dollars of investment could that take down? And I think that that's, that's so much to the point and I think that, that it, 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 cities are going to have to recast themselves to understand the way that they invest in places and that the way that they, you know, especially in downtowns and similar walkable neighborhoods, that those small businesses are going to have to be key and that it may be very 
kind of incremental investments, not just giving them money, but giving them support that I think could be, could be the key to that. Um, I, I do have, I would like to follow up with something because it, in a way, some of the things that you said, I think that there's a, a red flag that in a way could, could point to a different direction. Um, because I think that this whole thing is an opportunity for cities, for economic development, et cetera, to look at a lot of their bad habits um, and rethink them. And an example of, of one bad habit is, is making plans that are you know, 20 years and sit on the shelf and aren't really focused on implementation. Another example is you know, having, um, whether it's hotel occupancy tax funds here in Texas or whether it's um, economic development funds sort of you know, doing things that are more focused on, say, um, smokestack chasing than, than supporting kind of the, the local businesses and, and so forth or a combination of that. Um, the concern I have is that if this becomes something where it becomes big money and big developers and that all of the, that that's what happens and we know that most big developers don't think like you, um, that we're going to have kind of some, some pushes for opposite trends, that things are going to become continue to become bigger and bigger instead of more and more fine-grained, um, which is what we need, in my opinion. Um, do you have any thoughts on that, or is, is, am I, do, you, do you see the red flags that I see differently, or, or what? Yeah, I, I, I see them a little bit differently. Um, I understand where you're coming from. Um, I go back to the, the question on capital for a minute and just how it works. So, you know, we all, from a planning standpoint and from a city and civic standpoint, we think about development in sort of terms of bricks and mortar and buildings coming together and creating streetscape and experiences and then filling those those buildings with cool, you know, uh, entities, whatever it might be, and people. And, and, that's, and that's good. But the delivery system for that infrastructure is something that's been well honed since about 1946. And, and, and it is, it, and with the advent of the global economy and massive amounts of money that have come in from an investment pool standpoint, you've got people sitting in places of capital power um, with crazy sums of money in, in their funds. Um, so they'll have a, they may have just raised, I mean, you know, yeah, we all know people. You know, there'll be someone that just raised their seventh fund for $3 billion, you know, and you say, okay, $3 billion, that's a lot of money, but those people make money by deploying that capital. That's how that system works. So for them, um, and they have a time period that they have to get it out so that the investors in that fund can make their return on investment um, in, in a, you know, in a time frame that's, that's convenient. So everything about that delivery of capital speaks to big projects. Because mm -hmm. if you come in and say, hey, Rick, understand you have an idea and you want an open a storefront, um, you know, in the expansion of Bishop Arts or whatever it might be, and you need $200,000 to do that. And then you went, you talk to that fund that's trying to get, that, trying to move $3 billion in that, in this short period of time. Right. That, that's an ant on the wall. Right. Um, you're not gonna get their attention because to put the legal papers together, cost almost as much as it would if you had a $100 million project. So of course, right. they're, gonna, they're gonna go larger. And that's why what we hear oftentimes um, is, well, we won't look at stuff unless it's, you know, unless we're looking at at least a $10 million investment. So, so what I, I don't, so to me, I, I don't believe in, in trying to change the entire system because that's way more people than I can control at all. Right. I can't control anyone other than myself and sometimes barely that. Right. But, you know, but but if you understand how the system operates, then it's a function through regulation and through education um, and through visioning. Uh, well, how can larger investment come in and feel more fine grain, or right. and or while it does that, how can it induce small fine grain family based capital, which is what we're talking about, to come in and take what is to them a massive investment in two hundred thousand dollars. Right. Um, by opening up space or having areas that can redevelop because the, the size and scale of the property is so small, it would take forever to assemble it. So you take one off at a time. So I think it's having smarter plans is what I think. And I think it's plans that are infused with the knowledge and understanding of how capital actually flows in our real estate delivery system. 
and then how you can have a knock-on effect that lets the kind of stuff that you and I like to happen as well. But to, to push back against institutional capital means that it, it's still going to happen, and it means you're no longer involved. And don't you think that's basically one of the major tenets of having truly successful urban development? That's, that's essentially your job as a, as a developer, if that's your goal, is to be taking the capital and putting it into a more fine-grained increment or approach towards creating places like that. Well, I mean, I certainly believe in that, but not all my friends do. Um, right. You know, most, most of the people that do what I do were not educated as, as we all were, I think. Um, they were they had an equally good education, but it was in finance. So they're a whiz at, at structuring a deal or, or in law or sometimes construction, but usually finance first and then, then law afterwards. And, you know, so you so that's all about structuring the deal it has nothing to do with, with bricks and mortar, has nothing to do with placemaking. So so then but they're also good at putting teams together. So they will look around and capital will require this, too. Um, who is your architect? Who's your planner? Who's your landscape architect? And if you're getting kind of, you know, good questions or if someone hasn't worked with you before and they want to understand your, your approach, they do look at your team and you have to kind of put that together. Well, that's where it, the onus comes back to where the onus should be, which is the professionals that went to school and work every day on what we're talking about from a placemaking standpoint and understanding urbanism. And and even if it's not urbanism, just understanding how to put a place together that resonates and lasts longer than five years in terms of this value. And unfortunately, um, I don't think that our educational industry is doing that anymore. I think that students coming out um, aren't focused on the right thing. They don't understand how the system itself works. They don't know what a client is. They don't know how to sell. They don't know how to develop ideas as readily as maybe even when I came out um, that that can be implemented unless they're following a formulaic pattern and all they're really doing is creating, you know, an aesthetic and that's all they're doing. But they're not thinking at all about the structure and, and its relationship with other structures. And I unfortunately, because I, I love the design industry um, and I'm a product of it, but unfortunately, I think the vast majority of us in that industry um, don't think about those things anymore. And, you know, it's no one's fault. It's just how things have evolved. Um, but when you're, when you take less and less responsibility, as we've done as, as, you know, people in the design industry over the last 30 years, you're kind of left with a very narrow band of scope, which is to dress something up. And that's, I'm not being fair. There's lots of good people out there. I meet team every day and seeing you in places like that. But I'm I'm trying to make a point. Yeah. I think if the if our if our schools were taking a bit of a different approach, if our cities were requiring a different approach, mm, right. then the real estate delivery industry, which is essentially a following industry, it's not a leading right. industry. It will follow. And we I've seen that in my own path. I, I've seen that in urbanism. Back in the early 90s when I got out and I was interested in things like that, you know, you, you would, it was all you could do to not almost be laughed out of the room when you'd go in for zoning or you'd go in and talk to a client about how you could bring a collection of uses together, maybe not necessarily vertically integrated, but horizontally, and how they could get a better return on investment um, by marshalling resources in that manner because the market would embrace it better. It, these were concepts that really didn't exist back then. And today, of course, everyone does it. It's the flavor of the month. And even when it shouldn't, shouldn't be done in those locations, because it's, you know, urbanism works in some places, doesn't work in other places, in my opinion. So, so I have seen that evolve. And now when you look at where capital's flowing, I, what I find fascinating is, is there's this big distinction between core, core and, and suburban or core and non-core. And what that really means is core is where you have a lot of other institutional capital that's coming in. And mm -hmm. it's one small location like uptown Dallas. But when we look at other areas that may have an equal number of jobs or a good number of jobs or at least jobs in the right type of sector that's growing in terms of where our civilization's headed. Um, but the form around it is terrible and it can be better connected and put, put together. And, you know, it takes a little more creativity to put that together. That 
that's where the headwind is right now is to is to be able to assemble capital and put projects together where they're actually desperately needed um, and it's because of the mitigation of risk you know if you see someone's getting four dollars a foot in a tower um, and in someone's proposing a tower somewhere else which they probably shouldn't be doing <laughs> right. unless the dynamics are right um, and they're saying oh yeah we can get four dollars foot up here because they're getting it down in uptown dallas if we were sitting on that $3 billion, unless we knew those people really well, and we were willing to take a big risk on them personally, we probably wouldn't do it. But if we came, but simultaneously, if that same person came in and said, uh, well, here's a more fine grained approach, and it's connecting job to job with housing and some restaurants, and it's centered around placemaking and the end experience Look at my great architect over here and my planner. Look at the vision that they've arrived at and everything drawn here is affordable in terms of the construction. I and mean, here's our good uh, model that we are uh, in our financial projections and the way that the business deal itself is structured. All of that is done conservatively, but really well. They'll right. do it. They'll do it. And that's been our experience uh, time after time. But we're not the ones to go out and say, oh, well, just because it's happening in downtown means that it can happen in downtown Irving. It, it, it won't. Um, it has to evolve over time. So I guess a lot of my a lot of my um, perspective on on capital is is kind of thinking about which which I don't know anything about compared to you, but you know I kind of look a lot at at for example uh, Chris Leinberger's writings and how he talks about how big capital is very standardized by investors who can't necessarily look at something that's very high, fine grained, so they have to do everything standardized. They have to say, okay, if you have this strip shopping center with this many square feet on this side of a street with with uh, this many cars in this type of neighborhood, we can invest in it. And if not, we can't. Um, so, you know, and I know that there are some firms like yours, but there aren't many um, that, that I know of that, that really can, can pay attention to these types of details. Uh, so what I'm, what I'm hearing is in order to get these details right, which is what's going to make these big projects work, right? The, 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 the multi-million dollar project right next to Bishop Arts is not going to work if all of the businesses in, in Bishop Arts go out of business. Everything kind of falls apart, right? So, so where do you see as, what, what do you see as the opportunity for, for cities or planning or things like that? How, how does that need to change? Because my perception is that the developers, the big people aren't going to be coming in in general and making sure that happens. Um, but cities are going to have to change the way that they do business in order to make that happen, too. What do, you, what do you think needs to change in terms of planning, or how do you think cities need to take those types of steps in order to, to, to pay attention to this level of detail in a better way? Well, this, this is going to sound strange. Um, okay. I actually think we have a really good system. Okay. I think we have the most successful real estate delivery system in all of mankind's history. I think we have more money in all of mankind's history. Um, to be able to deliver a change and create a city and, and do all those things um, that we're talking about much easier and much more quickly than ever before makes the Romans look like peons. We okay. are far beyond uh, where anyone has ever been in history. The challenge is there is a breakdown in education. There's a breakdown in understanding of, of how that economic system works from our planning and design and, and, uh, and regulatory industry, in my opinion. So if uh, Chris is exactly right, that is the way that it is. And, you know, the big system in, in a real estate delivery might change over time. And I've seen it change, but still the majority, if you look at the majority of investment, it's not in all the cool places that you and I like, um, despite even the market liking those cool places, it's still delivering Jiffy Lube on an 11 mile stretch of Preston Road somewhere, it, following demographics and then and then working within the rules that the city has put up, which is essentially suburban. So, so I don't think it's a problem of the system. I think it's an it's a misunderstanding of how to apply the system. And so, so my thoughts there would be, if if real estate, which I believe it is, especially development, is a backwards looking industry. What I mean by that is. Is, is maybe 1% or 2% of developers are actually visionary, are actually moving forward in a direction um, that, that changes the market over time. You know, it's the trauma crows of the world back in the day. 
that may be one or two percent. Five percent, um, probably up to five percent, will consider it. And you know they may do not as good of a job as that one percent, but they're out there. It's not just about Jiffy Loop. Everyone else is following. They're following the herd. So if you, my my contention has been, if if you're following the herd, and the market is what defines where the herd goes, and then you start to change the market. Think about where Dallas has been, DFW, since at least I've been here. When I moved here, it was an incredibly boring city. It had a terrible downtown. Uh, Fort Worth was pretty good in, in its downtown. And then you had some office parks. And, and then you had a couple places where there were some restaurants, but really nothing else. You didn't have any walkable neighborhoods or, or districts. You didn't have any they, that were mixed use and kind of hip and cool. You didn't have any. Mm. Today, we have, we have probably like 12 to 15. We've, we've got a bunch. And some better than others, but, but that's good. That means to me that the market has shifted a bit. So you have, you have a f- more developers in the herd doing better things because they're following the herd and the herd and why they follow the herd is because that's where the success has been. So when their, their lender asks them, well, how do you know this is gonna be successful? They can point to 13 other developments around them that, and, that have been successful and they can show that, that success and then the lender feels comfortable and capital gets on board and it, and it moves. But it's still not moving the changing the paradigm mm. to change the paradigm you have to engage first of all you have to know who the one percent are you have to know who the five percent are and you have to know how they get their capital and how they deploy their capital and then you have to engage with them in in policy and vision that is grounded in a, a little bit of, of conservative thinking from a capital standpoint but the overall vision is not conservative and it's something of interest to them as well. And then you come together in true partnership, not necessarily financial partnership, to do that so that you can have the herd look up and see that you've done something that they haven't done before. They take notice. The 5% might take notice and do a couple more. Now the herd sees five or eight or 10 projects. And now some of the herd starts to do it too. That's, that's, how, you, that's how you address it. So for instance, you mentioned Bishop Arts. If, if the goal were a place like that, if the goal was to generate that type of success, but you really wanted to have fine-grained incremental development, um, it's not a bad thing to start out talking to a larger player that is capitalized, but talk about the vision and how that could be put out in a manner that feels fine-grained, or at least creates a nucleus that the fine-grained can rally around, because that will take, uh, that will happen and implement much more quickly than the 30-year process that it would take, if you're lucky, um, for the small grain incremental development to occur naturally over time. And, you know, 30 years is a long time. People live and die in 30 years. And professionals sometimes have focus for that long period of time, but the majority is they don't. They, they move on to something else. So you might have someone that's just hard hitting and doing an incredible job for five years, eight years, but not 20 years. There has to be more people and more capital involved for those places to be successful. And that's why I say it, it's really a failure in understanding of how capital flows and how to access that in a creative way. And that is uniquely and inherently the job of the planner. Interesting thought. I think that one of the things that I kind of hear you saying about, about education, um, because you know, I, I do I do kind of think that if, if we don't understand this technology of, of placemaking, which, which is, cannot be summarized as simple as have these types of uses or have this type of, of capital, this is, these are kind of, this is kind of a very fine-grained technology that a lot of which is, is intuitively understandable. In fact, a lot of which was, you know, we used to have illiterate lumberjacks which built these places, right? Like some, some of these things you can pass on without having to have a, a, a degree from Harvard. Um, if, if we don't understand these, these sort of fine-grained principles, then no matter how much capital we put in or no matter how we do things, it's not going to work. But your thought is we have a delivery system right now, and if the delivery system can be, can be done in conjunction with people having some understanding of the technology, then we may be able to, 
to build great places at a, at a stronger pace than before. Yeah, yeah, and I think your analogy about the scientists is a good one, um, or you know, folks that understand kind of good urbanism such. There are, don't let me knock the industry as bad as it sounds like I am, because I'm not, right. I'm, a, I'm a big believer in the design industry, and I think there's just incredible talent. And I think right now it's, it's almost better than it's been in the last 30 years, in my, in my opinion. Um, because there are a lot of people that have thoughts like what you're talking about, and they, they believe in these things. And it reminds me of like NASA, you know, mm-hmm. you've got these scientists that are unbelievable at rocket technology and fuel and all the stuff, all the stuff that NASA does. But if you put that collection of people in a room, they're not going to get anything done. Right. Um, they have to have the capital and they have to have the leadership for that to advance forward. So in our case, um, you've got people that are super good at understanding urban streetscape or urban retailing and how storefronts and sidewalks should meet. Super good at understanding tactical urbanism. Super good at understanding housing and housing typology. But they're not in the right room and they're mm-hmm. not sitting at the right table at the right time. And that's about leadership. That's about people assembling a team of the right scientists to deliver something that that works. And some of those scientists are going to hopefully are going to be people that understand cost effectiveness um, mm-hmm. and where to spend money and where not to spend money. So it is it is a team, and that's not all on the back of the city because it's not. City does a lot of different things. Um, it's not all not all on the back of the developer. Not all on the back of the planner but it is on the back of everyone. So it, it does start with the city. It does start with outlining regulation or vision through regulation um, that, that is smart. It thinks about the things that we're talking about. It thinks about the realities of how projects can get done. And then it maps out a plan that can embrace that capital flow and the institutional mindset of real estate in a manner that makes us collectively better. And I think that, that is really hard to do, um, but 100% necessary. What we've seen, rather, for the last you know, 80 years or whatever, is, is essentially an engineered solution of how do, we make, how do we get horizontal growth to go as quickly as possible? They've been, we've been super good at that, really good at understanding how capital flows um, to fuel horizontal expansion. We're now just coming back, back into renovation. That's a different approach. And... You know, we need to be schooled in that. Our leaders need to be schooled in that. Our, our leaders in the public realm need to be schooled in that because because we're not. And the only way you get that schooling is to study it and to talk to people like yourself and 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 talk to bankers and have that right. relationship on the capital side and understand where risk is, where it's not, how to mitigate that risk, um, and how to put something together in the end that a developer feels like they can make a lot of money doing. And if we don't do that, we end up with another plan that sits on the shelf with pretty pictures, um, but that, that can't actually be, be implemented. I don't think that, that not, not understanding capital in the market is the only reason that happens, but it's certainly a major, major reason why that happens. Yeah, and you know, it, we're talking about an incredibly complex topic, obviously, that there's not one silver bullet to it. Um, you know, I, we've all heard the same thing when the, the, you know, mean old bad developer person walks in the room and just trashes a planner's vision because it's, it's wholly not uh, implementable. That's the right word. Um, but it can't get done or it's too expensive or it'll never happen or it's, you know, we've heard all of that. And, you know, sometimes that's politically motivated. Um, but oftentimes they're right. When you look at the plan, they're right. It's showing multiple high-rise buildings in a place where the market's not proven for that. It's showing massive land acquisition across multiple ownerships that doesn't even respect the the pattern of the ownership. That's not going to happen. And so it it does come back to the planner being astute and educated in in the reality of business, but also being a creative person. And that's, you know, when I was at RTKL, that's what we used to talk about in our group all the time. It was our job is actually we are uh, we're investment facilitators. Now, that's when we're outside of the office. When we're in the office talking to each other, we're designers. So how do you put a design together that can be broadcast to your client such that that client understands how they'll make money 
and it's following their program, it's following their requirements, but it's going three or four steps further from a creativity standpoint to devise a plan and implementation strategy that gets done. And I can tell you that that's, that's not easy to do, obviously, um, but the best projects in our region, not just ones that we've worked on, but um, the best projects in our region are the result of that kind of a, of a dialogue. Sometimes it happens in the development shop. Sometimes it happens in the architectural practice. Sometimes, sometimes it happens in cities, but rare, usually it's in one of the others. Um, but it is always the result of a champion, a champion of vision, and champion of a vision that's grounded in reality, but that's also super creative. And, you know, and, and if you, so my feeling is if you're not working on a project like that, if you can't connect those dots, why work on it? Would you do you think a good word to describe that would be like functional creativity? Yeah, yeah, I know the right words, but yeah, it's it's functional creativity. It's um, it's grounded. It's grounded creativity. Right. It's been over an hour, and I have so many questions, but um, maybe uh, you you talked about, and obviously since you're teaching people, uh, you you're you're passionate about these things, right? And you've mentioned this a lot of of connecting. Um, the, the creativity through the process of, of explaining the why behind it, right? The, the fun, like the reason I say functional creativity is uh, if you're talking to people that are creatives and the people that are out there that have ideas, um, maybe educating them on the importance or just steps that they can take to be more functional in the creativity of applying it and explaining it to other people or just uh, maybe put it on your professor hat, just encouraging people in that, which you've already been doing in the podcast, but um, I don't know. I think that's a really important thing that you brought up a bunch of times. And is there, what are some practical steps, maybe even books or just different things that you think uh, could really inspire the more functional side of the creativity? Cause you know, it's, that's so important, uh, I think. Well, yeah, that's a good question. So, um some of this just sounds really simple, and it is simple. It's just people don't take the time to do it. If you have a client that comes in your office, and you're a planner, or you're an architect, or a landscape architect, and your goal is to take a piece of property, whether it's already developed or not developed, and, and to figure out how this program they've given you fits on that property. That's essentially what you, that's what everyone does when they have a, a private client that's trying to get a development going. So, so it's to understand what the program is and how the program itself might be made better, but in a manner that doesn't scare your client. So if it includes retail, like you've got a, you know, um, I, I'm not a big fan of, you know, big box power center retail. I mean, it serves a purpose, but I, I'm not a big fan of the, the footprint that it leaves. So what, what I would, and what I have urged in the past with folks that I've worked with is, you know, that reminds me, or this, this scale of program reminds me of 15 places around DFW. Let's go drive there. Let's look in the back. How is it serviced? Where do the trucks go? Um, how are these things set up on the lot? And what's the relationship between them and their parking? And let's really become experts in how that works. Because a lot of times, some of these clients, particularly for retail and stuff, are actually engineers by train. And so they think about things in a real functional manner. And so if you come in with an idea that might turn all that on its ear, mm. If as long as you can show it's still fundamentally mm. working, it's still fundamentally following kind of that, that black and white path um, of how the program uh, accesses parking, how it's served, how it works with its neighbors. But you might have a different idea so that it's a kind of a jigsaw puzzle in terms of the parcel plan and how it all comes together and you've got other uses that are coming in. As long as you can fall back on, but functionally, this thing works, let me show you exactly how it works. Then the risk that they're taking in is on whether the market will embrace it. That's a whole nother, whole nother discussion. Um, but without doing that, you're not taken seriously. You know, right. if, it's, if you're saying, oh, well, no, this is gonna be great. We're gonna have a two-story big box deal and we're gonna have a, a, you know, a structure parking right next to it. Um, and it'll be fine because we'll have a travel later that, that goes down. It's like, and, and you know what? They've done this in Baltimore. So it'll, it'll work here. Right. You'll get laughed out of the room. Um, but if you come in and you, and you show a different approach to, to how you can have a more compact footprint, um, 
you know, would have to sit down and devise a project together to get into more detail on it. But you get the idea. You kind of go through that process. Yeah. But you show how it's working in a conventional manner. Or there's aspects that are like a close cousin to the conventional mm -hmm. footprint. You're going to be taken more credibly. And if you're a city in particular and you're trying to change uh, the paradigm of the market and of the real estate delivery marketplace and, and everything goes with that, well, you really have to understand that. Um, because if you're putting especially zoning together that makes what I just described difficult to accomplish, that, that creative thinking, you're dead in the water. Um, that's, 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 a great, that's a great thought. I'm going to steal that and use that in other contexts. I like that a lot. Um, Paris, I will uh, leave you with the, uh, the final word or, or final thought, whatever you'd like to, to end off this discussion with. Well, you know, I'm, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you all. I think what we're doing right here is a part of the solution. Um, so kudos to you all for doing this. Um, I, I hope that uh, all of your, your future clients here and, and engage you um, for, for being a leader um, in this Thank area you. of things in our market. And because uh, it, it requires a lot of leaders, a universe of leaders, a constellation of leaders yes. uh, in order to make our collective experience a better one. Because um, I do think, as we've been talking, that the way that we have delivered things for the last 50, 80 years here has been terrific for a horizontal expansion. It's been terrific for making money. And it has done both of that very well. But we're no longer set up for that to occur especially now with all the federal funds that have come out in the near term, we're not going to have, I don't think transportation funding like we have in the past. So the best opportunity is places that where the infrastructure is already in place. That's renovation. So what we're talking about here is devising strategies that allows the very conventional real estate marketplace to figure out how to do that. And, and I can tell you through lots of conversations on my side, um, they don't know. It's not mm -hmm. a typical thing. And they're trying to figure it out. They're trying to have those discussions with their architects, and they're they're and it is slowly adapting and moving in that direction. Um, but what is disheartening at times is there's some pretty bad decisions that are being made through the through some of those relationships, mm -hmm. and they could have been so much better, even just a little bit better, um, if there was a bit more leadership. So I think what you all are doing is providing some of that leadership, and I I applaud that. We appreciate that. Okay. Well, uh, thank you, Paris, for your time. And um, we'll have this up soon. Okay. Take care.